seat, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. That's our scripture reading this morning as we continue working our way through the gospel of Mark. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation, which, by the way, though that's fairly standard these days in the, in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, don't think that the, the ESV is necessarily... Uh, a greater translation than, for instance, the New American Standard or even the 1984 edition of the NIV. Uh, these are great modern translations, uh, but you become accustomed to preaching out of a particular one, and since we use the ESV Study Bible in our adult Sunday school curriculum so often, this is the reason why. But I would encourage you to uh, always, uh, because we have the advantages today to use several translations in your own personal Bible studies. Uh, sometimes some of the slight differences in the way things are translated can, can bring out to you a greater depth of perhaps what the meaning of the text happens to say. This is often the case when you're reading through the Psalms uh, to compare one translation of passages versus another translation of passages. It's all good and for your edification. So this morning, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Just pause there for a moment. <laughs> Think of how often you said that when you were a, teenage, a teenager to mom or dad. <laughs> and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to sit at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. 
Father, grant us by your Holy Spirit the ability to really hear what Jesus is saying. Uh, Make it clear to us. (coughs) Make it clear to us in spite of our own desires and inclinations to box the word of Jesus in very tightly so that what it says to us is something that would be pleasing to us as opposed to the power of your word actually convicting us of our brokenness, our wrong-headedness, and the fact that in our natural state, everything in us is opposed to what is right and good and true in Christ. And so we pray, make our hearts pliable. Make our minds attentive. Give us grace to understand. And, O Holy Spirit, never leave us simply understanding your word. Always, Holy Spirit, please, work your grace into us so that we have obedient hearts that gladly embrace the truth that you would present to us. Remind us again and again that our our deepest desire ought to be to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. O Lord, no greater good can there ever be for us than to be conformed to the image of your Son. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What explains the title Some of you noticed the title of the sermon this morning called Stranger Things. Now, if you're not aware of the Netflix series by that title, Stranger Things, there's no connection here. So I have to give a little bit of a background. Uh, Stranger Things is a, is a, uh, now it's had two seasons on Netflix. About 1983, 1984, in uh, the heart of the, United States, Midwestern town in Indiana, um, where, through some strange experiences, experiments by the government, um, contact is made with an alternative parallel dimension. Now, that alternative parallel dimension is nicknamed by the four young protagonists, young barely teenage boys, maybe ten, maybe 12 years old, something like that. They call it the Upside Down. It's an apt description. Because in the series, the Upside Down, this parallel dimension, uh, is dark, it's cold, it's malevolent. Uh, the main life form of this Upside Down is always dangerous towards all life in our world. It seeks to enter into our world. It seeks to dominate everything in terms of life here in this world and then to use human beings and this world for its own malevolent purposes. Now, the connection to the message this morning out of this passage is that the upside down is is really metaphorical for what Jesus is addressing. The upside down actually properly characterizes human leadership in this world. Uh, The ways of human leadership from the fall of Adam have always been, as it were, upside down. So we come to this story. It's an important episode in the life of Christ, an important episode in the training of the disciples. We're we're close to the end of the three-and-a-half-year ministry of Christ. The disciples have been with him for various ones of them, James and John in particular, for three-and-a-half years from the very beginning. Uh, We can see how little they've learned in this passage. But that shouldn't shock us 
what it really means is, is that what Jesus came to do is so radically contrary to human nature that even being in the presence of Christ for three and a half years doesn't really quite do it. In fact, it's not until truly uh, the resurrection of Christ and the Holy Spirit, both in terms of on resurrection day and a week later and then in terms of Pentecost, that the full understanding and the full impartation of the full new life in Christ actually begins to fully manifest itself. So what we find in this passage is Jesus pointing to the kind of human leadership, the practices of that kind of human leadership, the relationship of that kind of human leadership that is actually uh, so endemic to mankind and its rebellion against God. The main point, the main message we want to see out of this is not to reject human leadership, not to reject human leadership at all. Really. It's about what is wrong with human leadership, what should be right about human leadership, but truly how the gospel is the only thing that can make it right. Gospel-centered life, gospel-centered living ought to increasingly be reflected in gospel-centered leadership. Now, I don't want you to think that this is a message about uh, elders and deacons and pastors and so forth. It really isn't. Every human being, in some context or other, is a leader. In some context or other, is a leader. And so this passage is going to point out the, the brokenness of the human condition. It's going to tell us what we need to be like But then it's going to point to the fact that Christ is the only way that this ever can become relevant, real, practical, lived out in our lives. I want to state the three points out of this message this way. The upside down is the will to power. The upside down is the will to power. The right side up is the will to serve. And the only way to the right side up is the way of the cross. Okay, three simple ideas. I believe this is what Jesus is trying to convey to us about how things ought to be in us as Christians. Now, to begin with, the upside down is the will to power. Leadership functions in this world according to power and control. Uh, leadership is most often exercised in this world, I would like to say all the time, because of the innate selfishness of human beings, to aggrandize the one who has it. Uh, To aggrandize one's own power and position and prestige along with the control. Now, in verse 42, Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he says, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And Jesus is pointing out that in the world, this kind of leadership is what people routinely, almost constantly, seek to acquire. Second nature, as it were. People seek positions of prestige and and power and position and all the control that goes along with it. Now, this is exactly the approach and leadership that we see we find in James and John. 
I want you to notice this, verse 35. We have James and John, sons of Zebedee. They come up to Jesus and they say to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? And they say, Grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They have a sense of a trajectory of where Christ is going with all of this. They can't understand all the stuff about the cross. We've seen this several times before. They don't get it. But they do have a sense of the glory of Christ at some point happening and coming. Lots of talk about the kingdom. With their conceptions about the kingdom, what does the kingdom mean? It means God's in charge, Jesus is the man, and we're the ones who are right there with him. So they're thinking about posturing themselves in the proper position when all of this happens. Now, the story is actually a little more complex than this. Matthew tells us some things about this story that are interesting. One thing in particular. Let me read a parallel passage from Matthew. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right, one at your left. Now, remember, Mark's whole program of a gospel account is streamlined. He's streamlining the record. He leaves out a lot of details. Uh, he leaves out details that are not absolutely necessary to get the big point of what he's trying to convey. So he doesn't really bring in the fact that it's really the mom who comes in the first place advocating on behalf of her sons. So it's not strictly necessary to the story that we know about Mrs. Zebedee because the, the true culprits remain James and John. But at the same time, Matthew's account tells us this. This will to power is not some defective male... <laughs> what do you call it? What's something opposite of a virtue? Vice. This is not some defective male vice. Nor is it unique to Jewish mothers. You heard about the rabbi walking down the street, met one of his young, one of his young congregants, a mother, with her two boys. And she said, how old are your sons now? And she replied, uh, the doctor is seven and the attorney just turned five. I was sharing that this week with uh, Chris Seha. He goes, that's not just a Jewish mother, that's a Mexican mother too. <laughs> it's an Italian mother. In fact, you look at every ethnic group and you find this trait universally. You don't find it just in men, you also find it in women. And that's the point that I think Matthew's account presents to us. It's not just the fact that men want to control and dominate. Human beings want to control and dominate. James and John desired the positions which would promote them to the highest place. Why? For their own sake. That's the result of the fallen human condition. People have the will to power and control 
instinctively because we're self-oriented. It's self-protective. If I'm in charge, then I am not vulnerable to what other people can do to me. But there's also just that whole sense of how wonderful it is to receive the applause of others. How wonderful it is to actually exercise control over other people's lives. We would all rather be masters than slaves. Now, here's the truth behind the story. As the story opens up, the nature of our fallen condition rather vividly, it points out that, well, there's no hope in the fallen human condition for there ever to be any kind of personal reform. It's very interesting that the phrase will to power was given to uh, Western uh, European and American culture by Friedrich Nietzsche, who died in 1900. Uh, Nietzsche's famous as an atheist thinker primarily because he gave us the phrase, God is dead. Almost everyone's heard that. You've seen the bumper sticker. Nietzsche says, God is dead. God says, Nietzsche's dead. (laughs) Right. But what Nietzsche was actually saying was much deeper than that. He said, God is dead, and we, meaning Western European Enlightenment thinking, we have killed him. With the rise of the philosophies of the Enlightenment, those philosophies that, that, that sought to think of everything about the world apart from God, without God as a part of it, that the, 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 the movement in that direction led to a dismissal of God as in any sense significant. That's what he meant. We have killed God. But Nietzsche also went on to point out that if that is the case, we no longer see human beings as, quote, made in the image of God. Nietzsche was an interesting evolutionist. He differed with Darwin's interpretation of Darwin's own theory. What Nietzsche thought was most significant about evolution is that all of human life has this will to power. And that in human beings, it becomes a very conscious will to power. Nietzsche thought the highest principle in all of human life was the will to power, the will to dominate, the will to control. The will to power is the drive towards achievement, the drive toward one's ambitions, uh, the striving to reach the dominant place in life. Some of you know the term Übermensch, the overman, or translated in English, the superman. All of that came from Nietzsche's thinking. This idea that that which is most central to human beings is to will to power to control. So practically, it is a matter of getting others to do what you want them to do because it ultimately um, is an exercise of your power over them and through them. Now, I want you to think how pervasive this is in all of human society that you're familiar with. Think of it in this term. You do so because I say so. Understand that what is the basis of you do so because I say so is this will to power. Now, we find it in the military. And it, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it makes sense in the military 
you do so because I say so. But only, but recognize that if, if you're the military and you're the Nazis, or you're the military and you're the Allies, what a difference it makes, right? You do so because I say so is incredibly awful under the Nazis. And that's why so many of its officials went to the Nuremberg trials and were found guilty of crimes against humanity. Right? So it's not a great principle. You do so because I say so. Necessary only if the situation itself is larger in a moral context. Policemen expect us to operate this way, right? When the red lights shine, you get pulled over. You do so because they say so. Better do so, right? But again, policemen are working in a context when human beings are not angels, but rather the opposite. We wouldn't have to have policemen if people weren't so regularly unfaithful to obedience to the law. But I want you to also recognize that this will to power, this you do so because I say so, is very, very often the way parents exercise their authority over their children. You do so because I say so, because I'm the parent. Now, the will to power in that context can also be deadly and destructive of children. What's the biblical response? What's the biblical way of looking at that? Well, very quickly, you do so because God who loves you has designed everything this way. And all of us who live in this world and who love God and who love Jesus recognize that there are people that we need to give obedience to because it's for our good. But to simply say, as we as often parents have done, do so because I said so, is Nietzschean. It's pure Nietzschean. It's pure will to power. That's why I say the gospel changes everything. If the gospel doesn't change your parenting, if the gospel doesn't change how... Christian policemen exercise their authority. If the gospel doesn't change how military men exercise their authority, and women, sorry, um, if the gospel doesn't change all of those things, then we are just doing the very thing that the fallen human nature compels us to do. The gospel is supposed to change everything. So let's go on to see what the next point is in terms of how do you make this right side up? There's a kind of transition in verse 41. It's interesting. The disciples hear the request of James and John, and they become indignant. Now, as I was studying this passage, I asked myself, and why were they upset? Was it because they thought, oh, you're such unchristians. You just don't, aren't doing this like Christians ought to do this. You know, how dare you? No, I'm thinking they were sad that they didn't get there first. So, Jesus brings in this huge contrast. Again, how the gospel changes everything. So the right side up, the will to serve. Jesus is going to say something that cannot be found in all of the ancient wisdom and literature of the human race. For instance, Plato. How did Plato think about leadership? Plato, if you remember the Republic, wanted to establish philosopher kings. The wisest of all men, philosophers, as kings to rule over everyone so that they would dictate to everybody how they ought to live their lives. Okay? Um, but there were going to be dictators. Benign dictators, but dictators nonetheless. Then think about Aristotle. 
Aristotle believed that everyone was naturally born into a particular state in life. Some were born to be slaves, and some were born to be rulers. Uh, so there's his perspective on this. These are prior to Christ. Think about what happened in Western Europe, though. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Western Europe is called Christendom. Uh, the gospel is supposed to be pervasive. There's no one uh, at the time of, let's say, the Renaissance who, in Europe who wasn't, quote, a Christian, because every nation is a Christian nation, per se. And in the um, around 1500, height of the Renaissance, there's an Italian prince, an Italian ruler called Machiavelli who writes this political treatise called The Prince. Machiavelli considered it to be normal and effective in ruling and in politics generally to be dishonest to the citizens of the state, even to kill innocent people and, of course, your political enemies. For these are the ways of preserving power and order. Do you know that his piece... His work, The Prince, is considered a classic of Western literature. The will to power is the will to aggrandize self. Oh, I, I forgot to say that in the 20th and the 21st century, the uh, basic ideas of The Prince uh, are followed of course, by the awful dictators of the world, North Korea. Uh, we find it in the history of modern China, yes. Uh, we see it in 20th century Russia, of course. Don't think we have not seen it again and again and again and again in the United States of America. Don't think that our political leadership in our own nation has in any way been unblemished by this kind of an approach, the will to power in terms of how affairs are conducted. Now, all of these ideas are included in what Jesus says in verse 42. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. In verse 43, 44, we see the inversion. We see the upside down made right side up. Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So this phrase, it must not be so among you. There, not, there must not be, in the ministry of you who are my disciples, especially you who are my apostles, not among pastors, not among teachers, not within the church in any kind, in any fashion. There must not be this kind of will-to-power leadership. Now, this is the chief failing of official Christian leadership for century after century after century. We see it today all across the landscape of Christian ministry. The Apostle Peter put it this way in terms of a warning. 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
not domineering over those under your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter was warning uh, his fellow elders. This is the great tendency to mimic the world's shape of leadership, form of leadership, style of leadership, whenever you exercise authority. But Jesus says it must not be so among you. Now, of course, the temptation as a pastor is to, uh, you know, check out all of my Christian resources and look at some notably bad examples of this that you might know. Right? Funny thing. While I was working on this, preparing this, two conversations out of my own life (laughs) jumped into my mind. So back in the 1980s, a couple of years into my senior pastorate in New Mexico, an elder and I, he's my age, were having this... uh, I thought, a good and helpful and edifying conversation about the church. And then he brought up his, uh, his wife's comment. He said that um, his wife, Joanne, had noted my effectiveness as a pastor. She said it was linked to my style as a pastor, my style as a dictator. I was a bit shocked, and he could see it. And then he hastened to add, oh, 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 <laughs> She thinks you're a benign dictator. (laughs) She really likes your leadership. We both laughed. But you can see all these years later, I have never forgotten that conversation. Then in 2002, I had been advised by um, some people who were helpful to me in many ways in terms of the ministry. I'd been advised to call up one of my critics to get his perspective on my leadership. Again, what he said stung greatly. He gave all the usual compliments. You teach well, you preach well, you do a lot of things well, but here's the problem I have with you, always have with you. You allow the ends to justify the means. Whoa. There is nothing more horrendous than operating according to a style and ethic in which the ends justify the means. That really hurt. Now, the point of those stories is this. The will to power is so deep, we often don't see ourselves operating in this way. We just don't. It takes another set of eyes. Now, do I agree with both of those observations that I was a benign dictator and I was willing to do anything to, to achieve my ends? I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> of course I don't want to see myself as a benign dictator. I just want to be seen as benign. <laughs> any position of power, listen carefully, any position of power presents this temptation to use that power to get your own agenda accomplished. No one's above that temptation. No one is above leading in that sinful way. So Jesus then gives us the right side up. True and godly leadership is going to be found in the will to service. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. The truly biblical way of leadership is this. To lead is to serve. 
And the motive to lead must be the motive to serve. It's to help others, whatever kind of leadership you're in, as a Christian, as a parent, holding some position in the church, or even as a Christian in your business or your job. It's to help others embrace the good which God has designed for them. It's always looking toward their best according to how God has designed it. It's always wanting them to become better human beings as God has designed it. It's not about you. Leadership is not about you. Leadership is about them. Another way of putting this, true leadership is found in the will to love. Because what is the bottom line manner that Jesus taught us to love? It's to love your neighbor as you love yourself. All of this self-love wants to aggrandize the self. Love others that way. Love others to promote them. Love others to enable them to become everything God wants them to be. And finally, the, the only way to the right side up is the way of the cross. Now, that's how Jesus finishes this passage. That's what he's teaching his disciples. The ultimate example of all of this is to be found in what Jesus himself came to do, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So true leadership is not found, by the way, social media people, true leadership is not found in how many followers you have. <laughs> right? I mean, that isn't even leadership, right? <coughs> True leadership is to be found in the people whom you serve. In the relationships you establish in serving other human beings. Dads and moms, your, your leadership in the home. It's found in, 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 in how you actually serve your children. What does God want them to be? Are you serving those ends? Uh, pastors, elders, deacons, leaders in the church, are you serving the ends for which God has created a community of believers? Are you serving them, enabling them to become everything that God wants them to be? So Jesus made it clear, God the Son, the Son of Man, did not come to be served. Now this is really quite contrary to everybody's expectations of the day because what is Daniel 7 13 and 14, the key passage in the Old Testament that has the Son of Man terminology. Jesus always referred to himself as the Son of Man. Here's what it says. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So understand, Jesus was all of that. Ultimately, all of that belongs to Christ. But in his first coming, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
I want us to think about this as we conclude. We have here the gospel-centered picture of God Himself. The God we serve, the God we worship, the God who is the true God is worthy of our service all the time, at, at, at every moment, every point. The, the natural way to look at God and man is to see God all great, all glorious, all worthy. It's to look at man as small, tiny, virtually insignificant. And it's to look at human beings and say, they ought to be constantly bowing before God, giving Him all glory and honor and praise, everything. Uh, it's almost like the, the posture should always be that of down on our knees, our eyes down, God, you're great. The Gospel tells us something about God. Not only is God all of that, and that looks like the proper relationship that should exist between God and us. Jesus came into this world and with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, took off his clothing, put on a servant's towel, and washed his disciples' feet. So I am among you, Jesus said. So I am among you. If I, being your teacher and Lord, have served you, so much you, so much you also serve one another. There is no gospel that does not understand that God, the greatest of all beings, descended to become one with us, but not just one with us, to become the one who would be the servant of a fallen human race in order that the many, the ransom for many, might be accomplished. It's not just an example Jesus has given us. There is no other way for us to become this kind of a leader in all aspects of our lives unless we reckon with this Jesus. In such a way that we say, this is the God I would love. This is the God I would serve because of all that he has done for me. And to see God as a God who, although he is deserving of all honor, honor and glory and majesty and power and submission on our part, he inverted everything in the gospel. He came for us. So in that great statement in Romans chapter 8 that says, if God is for us, stop right there and always think, and how was God for us? In the person of His Son coming into this world to do everything necessary, needed for our salvation, which was ultimately the ultimate price, that of His own life. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has loved you this way, and he has in Christ, then not only does this change everything, 
But when we think about leadership, it changes how we need to recognize the stranger things about this world. This world and the way it operates is the upside down. This world and the way it operates is malevolent and actually dangerous toward all of human life and human flourishing. It is only the gospel that brings things right side up. And the only way things can be made right side up is through the way of the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening up our eyes to more clearly see the world as it is and to see Jesus and to love Jesus and to know what a great God you are because of all that you've done for us. And so we would pray even as we come to the table this morning that our coming to the table would be just a powerful reminder that in the gospel, those things upside down have been made right side up in your Son. In his name we would pray. Amen.